Hello, and welcome to Season 5 of Human Awareness, the official podcast for High Global, where we take you on a journey through love, intimacy, and sexuality. I'm your host, Haya, and I'm inviting our guests to open their hearts and their experience so we can all learn together. Okay, with that out of the way, let's roll tape on our interview. Hello, and welcome back to the Human Awareness podcast, where I'm joined with a wonderful friend. Will you introduce yourself and state your pronouns, please? Hello, and thank you for having me. My name is Naomi Yano. I go by she and her, and I am a professional psychotherapist based in the Toronto area in Canada, and I am very, very passionate about my work and also how everything I've learned professionally actually applies in my embodied day-to-day living with the relationships I have with the people around me. Wonderful. I... I love the idea of um, feeling into what it's like to be less alone in the world. Mm. It's a theme that is kind of repeating for me as as we're re-emerging from a pandemic. Um, and when we first started talking about uh, doing this podcast together, um, you kind of used the phrase, uh, I want to talk to you about how love and relationships are not a mystery. Mm-hmm. And that to me was deeply, deeply intriguing. Um, how does that show up for you? Yeah, well, I I think at both a personal and a professional level, it's incredibly intriguing um, in that I think, you know, I, I kind of grew up with this notion that love is a mystery. You know, people don't make sense. Why do they do these things? That sort of attitude that, um, you know, people do strange things and I have to figure out why they're so odd and, and that sort of thing. Um, and sometimes I just might never know, and I just have to live with that. And what I, I think along the way is is that I've started to gather information, perhaps personally, to try to make sense of my own experiences in life. And the more I could make sense of things, the more empowered I would feel about my choices and my options going forward. So I could have a different experience. And uh, professionally, I work from a model called emotionally focused therapy. And what or how that model evolved was Sue Johnson is the psychologist. uh, She's here in Canada who developed this model. And from what I understood she did is she watched thousands and thousands of couple therapy videos watching to try and figure out what makes a good therapy session. What is actually happening that a couple comes out the other side uh, with a a healthy outcome. And so she would watch the micro movements, what is being said, what is being felt and tracked it and then developed this model out of hours and hours of watching and uh, summarizing what are the key interventions that are happening. And from there, she developed this model, which again has been under a lot of uh, research and experiments to you know, really distill what is actually helpful in in this model of therapy and how do we know what works and what doesn't work. And as I really got entrenched in that model and started practicing it, I personal experience, yes, this is working, right? When I do this, when I can help a couple see this, it does actually work. This is actually effective. And then in my own personal life, again, I cannot separate that from how I relates to others. It's okay. Do I apply this? How do I apply this with the people around me? And yes, when I do it this way, it does. I see the effect. I see it changes things. And we look at it from a a systems perspective, 
you know, what are all the moving parts in the system? And if we can start to understand it from that level, we could start to predict with greater um, accuracy what might happen next. How do we create connection? How do we have healthy relationships? Yeah. And so when you say this is something that's showing up for you in your personal life, you know, mm -hmm. I, I always find that really intriguing. I, I have a therapist that I work with and mm -hmm. th they are, they're like not a fully firm human being to me because, you know, it's their job to not show too much of their personal self. The great thing is you are not my therapist. So I get to ask yes. you <laughs> questions. So how does this yeah. show up for you in your personal life? I do want to say that in, in the model of therapy that I use, I will use myself and disclose parts of myself if it is clinically relevant and useful. Because I think sometimes if I do actually show my humanity, I will cry with my clients. I will say, when I hear you say that, it breaks my heart. Because I think it's actually clinically relevant that they notice that I'm human and I actually am moved by what they say. I'm not actually indifferent. Um, and again, if the focus, is it for them or is it for me? But if it's clinically relevant, I have no issue with self-disclosure. But far as uh, how it shows up personally, I think for me, the more I understand what happens in intimate partner relationships that creates a disconnect or connection, I really try and do that myself with the people around me. And of course, easier said than done, especially when it's your own stuff. Of course, if I can objectively look at another person and say that triggered you, but if it's me, it's, it's not as easy, but I do work very hard to do that. So whether it's, you know, even in the last week in my relationship with my son, right? I, I, we might have a particular interaction and I step back and when I could objectively look at it a little more clearly, <laughs> Um, I try to reflect on what was, you know, a key principle here is how do I influence by the way that I show up the response of the other person? I'm not responsible for it at the end of the day, but if I come in yelling at someone, chances are they'll get angry and yell back. If I come in with softness and gentleness and kindness, chances are they'll be receptive. Never any guarantee, but I can influence the system. And that's my choice. And that's where my power is. So I try to sort of, it, it's kind of like a mindfulness meditation principle. I'll, I do the thing, I catch myself, I notice what happened, and then I see if what I learned from that. And I do that over and over, I think with most, if not all my relationships, all my important, significant ones, that is something that I, I practice on a regular basis is, is learning more about myself and, and how I influence those around me. Thank you for sharing that. One of the things you just mentioned about the catching yourself stepping into a state of activation or catching yourself, realizing that there's something that that isn't fully flowing. Can you say a little bit about like, how do you notice that? For me, I often notice, notice way too late. That for me is the practice. It is like going to the gym and, and the more often we go to the gym and we lift these weights, the easier it gets. This, we can do more reps, we can lift more. And for me, it's like the emotional muscle gym, where the more often, this is why I think mindfulness meditation is, is a big piece of this and has helped me. I, I practice quite disciplined for some time. And the more often you practice it, the easier it gets. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm 100% good at this and I do it all the time, but it's much easier for me to notice it sooner because I've done it so many times now that it's easier to catch myself when that when my nervous system starts to go, uh, and I start to get that activation. I see it, I feel it. I've been here before. I've practiced being here and pausing in it already. This is not the first time. And so, oh, 
I've been here. I recognize this place. I can take that deep breath. I can most of the time find my way back to center, not always, uh, but it really is a matter of practice. And, and this is where I invite clients, friends, everybody to be gentle and kind because it is something that we do over and over. And it's okay that we do it over and over. And I do trust that the more often we do it, the sooner we can catch ourselves. But it takes practice to mm -hmm. slow, slow ourselves down enough and, and it gets easier. So for me, it's been years in the making when you say, how do I do it? Well, I've been at this for eight years or something. So now it's a bit easier than it was eight years ago. And it's not perfect either. And so what does that look like in practice? Say I say something mm -hmm. and you notice something like, do you ask for a break or do you say out loud that, hey, I'm having an emotional response or like, what do you actually do in that moment? Best case scenario, and then I'll go to worst case. Sure. Best case scenario, actually, be, because this is something that, um, quite matter of fact, that I, I practice or I do when I'm, let's say, working with clients, right? Let's say maybe I've got a, a, a couple in conflict and they're highly activated. I'm, you know, I'm practiced now at being able to stay centered and being able to kind of name what's happening. So when it happens to me and I'm with somebody, again, the less close they are to me, the easier it is to do because the less triggered I am. There's a way in which my body, I could kind of notice what's happening in the interaction between the two of us. And, and this is that state of not taking it personally, being able to step back and honor what's happening for them, what's happening for me, find that place of some kind of objective reality. This is what you feel that's real. This is what I feel that's real. Can we agree? This is where reality is right now. And so in the moment, in my body, I think it's just a state of regulation. I'm not thrown off. I'm not panicked. I can see what's happening and I could tell you what I see. So it might sound something like, oh, you um, aren't convinced uh, that I'm not out to get you right now. You're so sure that you can't trust me. Is that what's happening? And I could just name that. And, and so that's what it might sound like as an example, right? Now, it's a bit harder when, of course, it's somebody I share about and they've triggered me and I'm feeling insecure and I'm all of that's happening. Um, and in fact, if I think about it happening the other day, there was an interaction and I was completely thrown off balance. So I was confused. And... I was just like, what is happening? I repeated my question and I was at a complete loss. Like I did not know what just happened. And so the conversation ended and I just had, to, they walked away, I walked away. And what it looked like after is me sitting and thinking, what happened? How did I lose my balance? All of that. And it, again, it's that sort of catching yourself, right? Making sense of, okay, this is what they were feeling. And I, I didn't see it in the moment. This is what they, this was their story about me. I couldn't see that in the moment because I wanted to defend myself because I got triggered. Okay, now I understand. So I, in my head practice, okay, if I could have a do-over, what would I wish I could have said or done? And I actually practiced that in my head because I'm like, okay, if we have that interaction again, I've practiced what is that balanced place? If I'm not going to be triggered, where do I actually want to go? Let me try it right now. What are the words? And I'm going to try and find my way back there if that interaction happens again. So there is very much an experiential. I'm trying to exercise that muscle over and over. How do I respond? What do I say? How do I stay balanced? 
mm-hmm. don't know if that quite answers the question. <laughs> I'm not sure if it does, but it doesn't matter. I think it's really yeah. interesting. <laughs> this is how conversations go with me a lot. There's a question yeah, and then we go in a completely different direction. I'm an introvert at heart and I spend um, a lot of time kind of, um, like I love being in heart-to-heart connection mm-hmm. and I'm not there a lot of the time. Yeah. But I, I sense this tinge of envy just now. That you get to spend so much time with clients. You get to spend so much time observing how people interact and all that kind of thing. And my mm-hmm. curiosity is like, do you feel that that helps you in your personal life as well? Yes, 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 yes. Um, I have thought of my job this way for quite some time as, in my opinion, the ideal job because for the kind of therapy that I provide and the kind of therapist that I want to be and that I value. I believe that I actually get paid on a regular basis to be the best human that I could be. Who can ask for a bit more than that? I I go to trainings, I go to therapy, all in the service of developing my own self-awareness, capacity to love, capacity to have compassion, capacity to understand relationships. Who wouldn't want to get paid to do that? I I think it's perfect. And so, uh, yeah, I, I love that I'm able uh, to do this and it really is for me an embodied existence uh, all of this that I do with my clients helps me be a better human in all the relationships that I have mm-hmm. I think that's amazing <laughs> when you think about relationships that are important to you like which ones immediately spring to mind right for me 100% the number one is my son and then after that, it would be, yeah, family and closest friends, that inner circle, people that I value, people that um, I experience as in the arena with me, right? Mm-hmm. Wanting to connect, trying to stay in connection, even if we have ups and downs, that, that we are committed to be in connection with each other. That's that. So I would say is the people that I value yeah. most. Yeah. I, I have a curiosity, obviously with with children in particular, there's a huge amount of evolution that happens on the emotional side, right? Yes. From, you know, screaming tiny bundle of squish yes. to like <laughs> fully formed emotional depth and that kind of thing. Yes. And mm-hmm. I'm curious how that has affected you, like being that close to seeing such an evolution. Has that informed your work or how you see humans? Uh yeah, how might I answer that? He's 15, but even before he was born, it was a value of mine or maybe, a, how would I put it? I guess academically, right? I was very aware of the research around attachment and bonding and that sort of thing. And I was convinced, and I still am, that in that zero to three or perhaps zero to five is critical for emotional development because When infants don't have language, their first language is actually emotion. It is the sense of, is my nervous system activated or calm? Is my caregiver's nervous system activated or calm? And we operate around that when we have no words. We operate around trying to soothe the nervous system or be soothed. And I was very aware of, you know, what am I providing for my son when he was born during that period? Because that shapes everything else going forward. What we learn about how to connect with others and calm our nervous system is what we then replicate at for unconsciously for the rest of our lives until we learn something differently. 
And again, this is all the, some of the, the attachment uh, research and bonding science that I'm referring to when I say love is not a mystery, human connection is not a mystery. We can see how this starts to form and get repeated in, across our lifespan. Mm -hmm. And so that was huge for me. But then I think the the difficult thing that has shaped me now, I can see now in hindsight, some of the unhelpful things that perhaps I modeled or did when he was in that age. And, and, and now I'm wanting to undo it or show him something different than what he experienced then. Mm -hmm. I'm an imperfect human. <laughs> I'm learning, growing, changing. He's been quite gracious with me with my changes, but it is something that I think is constantly evolving that I'm learning and I want to do better in yeah. my relationship with him as I, as I develop myself. I recognize this is potentially a very personal question. Would you sure. share one of the one of the things you realized you got wrong? Yeah, I think for me it was um, when he was young, uh, probably around two years old. Um, we had a, a a lot of uh, I guess I know I had a lot of trauma in the family dynamic. Uh, to be more explicit, there's a bunch of things, but one was I had a daughter. She was in the uh, and I see you at the time, uh, and she was dying. Mm -hmm. And um, I was in a lot of pain and agony. And one of the things that I wanted to do was shield him from it because I didn't want him to feel responsible to make sure that I was okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wouldn't let him see me cry. I wouldn't let him know that I was hurting. And, you know, I get that, and I still agree that I don't want a child to be responsible for their their parents' pain, but I don't think that pretending I was okay was of any service to him. Mm -hmm. And so what I wished I did differently was that I let him see me cry, but he that he would also see that I could turn to other adults who would help me regulate myself and that he didn't have to. He could, if he wanted to give me a hug, no problem, but that it wasn't his job or he was the only one, or if he didn't do it, I wouldn't be okay. But I wanted him to have, I guess, in retrospect, the choice. Mm. He could comfort me if it felt good to him and he didn't have to because I had enough support from other people. Um, so that's what I wish I would have done differently because I, I don't know what that taught him about, You know, maybe you should hide if you're crying or if you're hurting. Don't right. show anybody. And so I'm not, I'm, you know, in a place now where I want him to see, I, I have these feelings and he doesn't have to take care of me, mm -hmm. but it's okay if he wants to, but he doesn't, there's no pressure that he must. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. <laughs> I think Hai does a really good job actually of letting people have their emotions. Mm -hmm. Like we have such a big, like, oh, somebody's crying. I have to go hug them. Or as somebody is crying, it's like, let people cry or let people yeah. have an emotional reaction. And then if they need support, trust that they will ask for it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's only recently kind of clicked for me that that is true in a much broader sense than in a workshop, mm -hmm. right? Like the, yes. the situation you described with your child, um, you know, I am, I'm not a parent, but I imagine as a parent, you're very mm -hmm. strong, like, oh, my child is unhappy or my child is having, like, I want to help. Yes. And as you, like demonstrated the inverse of sometimes having an emotional response and just letting that emotional response be because you are in a situation where with a kid in ICU, what better time to have an emotional response, you know, sure, it, it makes feels sense. like th mm -hmm. that's where we're being humans. And in yeah. this case, being humans together, I think that's actually yeah, kind of 
kind of beautiful. I think at the core of it, uh, maybe there's two things I want to point out. One is the importance of separating the feeling from the action, mm -hmm. because uh, I want to help versus I'm going to come in and actually fix it are very two very different things. Because the second point I want to make is that sometimes the feeling itself is the thing that we most need. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I'm crying and you rush and you grab me a tissue box and you shove it in my face, I get the message, you want me to stop crying and, the, and I feel dismissed or whatnot. I'm not allowed to cry. But if we notice, if you don't grab the tissue box and you simply look at me and say, I really want to give you a tissue because I feel so sad watching you cry. It's so mm -hmm. hard for me. That's actually the thing that's probably going to bring me some comfort. And like we were talking about earlier, help me not feel alone. You see me in my tears. It impacts me. It matters to me. I feel less alone. I'm still sad, but at least I feel like you're with me. Mm -hmm. And then it's easier to bear this sadness. You don't actually have to give me the tissue box. You just tell me how badly you want to give me the tissue box. And that might actually help me more. And even as you were saying that, I had this sense of like, if somebody tells me they feel bad because I am crying, I, I feel like I'm immediately dropping into phoning. Right, I immediately want to make them feel better by me stopping crying, and mm -hmm. I'm I'm also recognizing that that's a me thing, right? They didn't ask me to stop crying; they were just sharing how they felt, and I took yeah. on the yes. responsibility. It's like, oh, yeah. So here we are learning stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and that is such a common experience that that you're naming. I see that in so many mm -hmm. people, and in fact, I just started taking notes to write a little blog article about it because it's so pervasive that makes me wonder what is happening more broadly in, in a cultural sense that there's so many people that when we feel an emotion, we feel immediately responsible somehow. Like, oh, you feel bad, then I should stop feeling this. So you stop feeling that way. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it can be so hard for so many people to just sit and not feel like they have to do something about that because I think it, yeah, it's huge when, if you're feeling sad and I tell you, I feel sad too. And if someone doesn't have to jump to fix it, what actually happens if you mm -hmm. stay and you notice I'm sad, you're sad, we're both sad, we're both sad about the same thing. That's, I think, where connection happens. That's where we've been in uh, another model of therapy. We talk about undoing aloneness. That's where the aloneness gets undone is when you could see me seeing you and we don't have to do anything about it, right? That's where the comfort is, I think, potentially. But a lot of people find it hard to trust mm -hmm. that if I don't jump to change something and if I just sit there in darkness with you, that that's actually going to help. I don't know. Last time I sat in darkness, it sure didn't feel good. Nobody came. Now you're telling me to just sit there and let me let you be sad with me. I don't, a lot of people, I don't trust that's going to end well. So let's just stop the whole thing. At the beginning of this conversation, we touched on love in society being seen as a, oh, we, nobody understands love. Who knows how mm -hmm. this happens? And yeah. it feels like you're taking a slightly different tack. And I would want to dig into that a little bit more about uh -huh. like what, like, what have you figured out about love that the rest of us haven't quite sure. figured out yet? <laughs> Yeah, uh, I would say, and, and if people are interested, I mean, I'm not an academic, so I will not be able to accurately cite articles and research because I just, I'm not, I can't memorize that stuff. I read it and then it's, it's, it's gone. But 
there is a book that was really helpful for me, and it's not a clinically heavy book. It's a, a light, easy read for you know the average person. It's called Love Sense, uh, again, from Sue Johnson, the, the founder of EFT. And she cites all kinds of research in very easy to understand language that supports uh, you know, what convinced me, <laughs> I guess, of all of this. Um, but as as far as, you know, how do I know it's it's not a mystery? What have I discovered? Um, there's probably a, a, a few different things. Uh, one is, and there's research that just uh, in sort of a broad sense comes out of more of the neurobiology, neuroscience field uh, about how our brain is is wired. And you know, there's bits and pieces about just how uh, we are wired as social creatures, right? Infants are born dependent on their caregivers. You leave an infant out there alone with that, like they're they're not going to survive. We are designed to need others in order to get through life and develop. So it's very normal to need others. We are an interdependent species. Mm-hmm. Um, we can see how when we actually learn to uh, take in and receive the support of others, um, we start to develop our independence. We don't become independent out of the blue. We become independent because we allow ourselves to need and we allow ourselves to trust ourselves what we feel. Other, when others say to us, you know, you're right, what you feel, it makes sense. We internalize that voice and it becomes our own voice. And if you think about the, you know, people who have a critical voice in their head, it's often a parent or caregiver that's become that recording mm. in their head. So can you imagine, I mean, I didn't have this for my childhood, but can you imagine if you grow up in an environment where the voice is trust yourself, what you feel makes sense. You are worthy. Of course you deserve that. And if that becomes your internal voice, right? Probably the self-acceptance and self-love theme might be here as well. Then you learn that you can trust yourself, you can reach for others, others will be there for you, and that you could be independent and do it by yourself because somebody else believed in you. So anyway, I'm going, kind of going off on a tangent, but we are designed to be interdependent uh, um, and going back to the neurobiology piece, um, we can see how, um, how do I put it, when we get very activated or triggered, Right? There's a big emotional response in our brain. When that is activated, there is less activity in the rational parts of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, the thinking, logical side, because we're in survival mode. Right? We, we're not trying to problem solve. We just got to get the heck out and be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we do see is when we can calm that emotional part down, then we have more activity in, in the prefrontal cortex. We can be more rational. How does that happen in human relationships? What does that mean? Well, it means whether maybe it's a kid having a tantrum or you're in a fight with your partner. When you can validate their emotions, ah, it makes sense you feel that. Of course, you really want the candy bar as we're leaving the grocery store and you're having a tantrum. Of course, you think you can't live without the candy bar or to your partner. Of course, you're so upset. You're convinced I don't care about you because I didn't bring you flowers. When we can actually validate that emotional response, that's what decreases the activity. Mm. And then, only then, we have the opportunity to maybe problem solve, you know, oh, can I explain to you why this happened? Oh, can we do this next time? But there is actually a process at that neurobiological level to help us co-regulate each other. And when we can do that and practice that, 
when we can feel seen and heard by the other person, we start to create connection and opportunity to connect more deeply. Um, so these are some of the, sort of the bits and, and, and pieces here. And again, this comes from all kinds of uh, uh, different, I guess, maybe fields or bodies of research and so forth. Um, but there is something huge about that. Uh, validating the emotions, feeling seen, feeling, again, less alone. That helps us regulate ourselves. So then we actually have more flexibility in what we do next. We feel more empowered. Problems look different, right? The yeah. world looks brighter when we feel seen, heard, and not alone. Can I make a confession to you? Please. <laughs> Most uh, the last couple of minutes you were talking, I was completely zoned out ah, because you okay. said something in the beginning yes. that completely blew my mind. Okay, please And share. it was the, your contrast of independence versus interdependence and then maybe mm. the extension of that codependence. You didn't say okay. that word, but that's yes. that trio yeah. kind of shows yes. up for me. Yes. And I had never thought of independence as something that was anything but you have to figure it out by yourself. Your way of framing that, I'm going to have to sit with that. That feels really yeah. true, but also like, why yeah. did I make it to 42 years old without, <laughs> without somebody saying it this way? Yeah. Where did yeah. that come from for you? Would you say um, more about that independence piece? It came up so often that you know, people say, I want to be able to validate myself. I want to not depend on others for uh, my self-esteem, my self-worth. And again, through all the research reading in my own experiences, I said, well, how do people actually get there? Like I asked myself, how did I get to a place where I feel like I can successfully most of the time, not all the time, give myself that validation? And I realized, again, like I went back and thought, well, why couldn't I in the beginning? Well, because I never got it from anybody else. How did I actually get it? From other people. It didn't magically appear in my head. I had to go through a transition phase that was like a do-over from my childhood, the thing I never got. And I got all kinds of people saying to me, you are worthy, you are this, you are that, believe in yourself, you are deserving, you are beautiful, until it became my voice. And that's why I said, I didn't become independent without first being dependent until other people said, trust yourself. Then I did actually trust myself because somebody else believed in me first and I learned, oh, I can believe in myself. And where did my independence come from? It came from dependence. And so the, the end product, I think, is the interdependence where I can trust myself. I can believe in myself. But in moments where I don't have the strength, I can reach out to the trusted, safe others and they will help me. And I will do the same for them. The end state for me is not hyper-independence. I'm going to do this all by myself. One, because I can't. And two, I don't think we were designed to. Mm. And if you do, you can survive, but you're probably going to be exhausted and low. So that's that. my own journey. That's beautiful. Thank you. I see that in how it applies to my parenting. I told my son the other day, and I, I hope I do embody this. I said, my job is not for you to become the person I want you to be or the person I never became. My job is to help you become whoever it is that you are meant to be, whether I like it or agree with it or not, mm -hmm. I'm here to help you figure out who you are and support you in that. And that's what I want for him. I want him to feel like I trust and believe him to 
trust himself, even if it means he disagrees with me, even if it means he says, no, mama, I don't like what you're saying. Yes, I want you to trust yourself and fight back and, and believe that this is who you're supposed to be. That's my my goal for him. Mm, I I sense that that is a goal for many parents. And I sense also that that is a very hard thing to put into. Yes. It, it, touches the, it touches the ego, right? It touches the ego as a parent um, in a way that can be really beautiful, but can also be really challenging. Yes, yes. There is a, for me at this stage of trusting the process that he's a teenager and yeah, we will disagree. And I imagine it hasn't happened yet, but you know, some of the decisions he makes, I might watch him hurt himself mm -hmm. in some way or go through pain. And I'm going to have to trust that he'll come out the other side, having learned something about himself without me stepping in to rescue him or tell him what he should or shouldn't do, but that I want him to trust. Okay. If I do this, I see what happens. This is the outcome. Then I, hopefully he'll gain more trust to listen to himself next time because, mm -hmm. you know, he takes that information in. Um, but it is very much a risky thing. And of course, I'm always, if I need to step in and save his life, of course, I'm going to do that. But kind of choose your battles, right? Am I going right. to let him decide this and feel the consequences and let him learn? And yeah, it's a hard thing to discern. And stand by with a robust first aid kit kind yes. of thing. <laughs> exactly. Go, am I being a good parent? Right. Is this okay? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that is... That exact phrase is something I've heard from every parent I've ever spoken to, right? It's, yeah. It seems to be kind of a universal fear. It's like, how much do you yeah. let people experiment and how much do you go, mm, actually, let's not do this. That's going to end terribly. <laughs> right, <laughs> kind of right. Thing. Naomi, thank you so much for, um, for this conversation so far. I kind of want to go back to something we uh, talked about a little bit earlier about how do we know that love is not a mystery? And how do, how do we make that our, our journey? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I, I'm actually going to refer back in a very concrete way uh, to what I do professionally in emotionally focused therapy, because this is actually sort of the roadmap for how we create a connection, the roadmap for how, what we do, uh, that isn't a mystery <laughs> in some ways. And um, when it comes to relationships with others or relationship to self, uh, I think this is sort of what applies. And, and it's that a lot of us have probably repetitive experiences in our lives and our relationships, especially the difficult ones. Here I am again. They still don't hear me or they still don't whatever. Like we often, you know, when we're in conflict, we end up going in, in circles sometimes and we don't know why we got there. <laughs> and so from this model of therapy, what we look at is, first of all, you know, what triggered this thing? Right? What got this started for me? It could be an actual event outside of me or it could be my perception of something happening that wasn't intended. We look at the different emotions that get evoked and why they get evoked. What are the beliefs or thoughts that really create and churn up these emotions? Um, and then we look at what we do when we have these beliefs, these feelings, and this trigger. What is our action tendency? And then what is the outcome? What happens next? And it's most often the case that there is some benefit 
but there's also a downside. But then we repeat that cycle over and over. And, and so change really is about looking at uh, some of the emotions in that state and seeing, is there another option here other than the action tendency that I'm so inclined to do? And often, especially if you see, you know, if you've experienced trauma, the action tendencies make sense because they worked at that time. So maybe if I protect, I shut down, I yell, I defend myself, it actually worked back then. So no wonder you do it. But what we often look at is, but does it work now? Maybe in your intimate partner relationship, is it still actually unsafe? And if it is, do the same thing. Absolutely. But if it's not, mm. are you actually perpetuating the same problem when you don't have to anymore? It's like a false alarm. You think it's dangerous, but it's actually not. And again, your partner might be doing things to perpetuate that. So both partners need to uh, take responsibility for how they're contributing. Uh, but then we go back and we look at, okay, is there another move here? And it's often in a state of vulnerability. If I can share with my partner what's happening here for me. Uh, how they're touching on my old wounds or triggering, you know, some sensitive part of me. If I could actually share that with them, let them see me in this place and um, receive their response, which is most often compassion and care, then we start to create a whole different dynamic of connection and closeness. And uh, so there is, again, a, a particular roadmap that it makes sense that you go down this road, but there's also a lot of research and evidence. If we go down this road, yeah, this is where we can find each other and, and love and, and care and compassion. So yeah, that's sort of a nutshell. I mean, I could go on and on for hours in more detail about that and what it looks like. It sounds like for myself or professionally, um, but this is something that, again, in, in my professional work, we do over and over. It works. I, you know, try and embody this in my relationship. It works. And I'm convinced that there is actually a way of knowing. And again, we don't know everything, but we've learned and developed over years and years, getting clearer and clearer about the science behind why do I feel good when I'm with this person? Why do I not feel good when I'm with this person? What's actually happening that makes the difference? We can actually mm -hmm. name that. So, yeah. And I feel like some of the processes you're describing, and especially the, is there another way to do this? Mm -hmm. It's really a recipe for vulnerability mm -hmm. um, and that you're daring. Yes. You know, show that underbelly or open your heart yeah. or whatever the phrases you want to choose. Right. And that creates the conditions for love to be able to grow and flourish. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think a big thing that personally I... I has become to the forefront for me is, uh, you know, I, I, I don't believe in being vulnerable for the sake of, of being vulnerable in and of itself. And what's really come to the forefront for me is a discerning. How do I discern when it's safe? Because when it is safe and I take that risk to be vulnerable, yes, there is connection, but also, and unfortunately, when it's not safe, it's okay to not be vulnerable mm -hmm. because, I mean, that's the whole reason why we learned to hide in the first place is you know, we, we were vulnerable. We were crying as kids and we were told to shut up. And I'll give you something to cry about. And, you know, we learned it's not okay. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that still happens. And so I, I myself want to be, uh, take calculated risks. And I usually err on the side of risking and get hurt more often than not. But 
you know, it, it makes sense to be cautious. You mm -hmm. don't have to be vulnerable with everybody. You will get hurt, unfortunately, with some people. It's okay to be wise about that, but take some risks somewhere, right? And, and then you get to experience connection. I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Thank mm. you so much for spending some time with me today. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be able to chat with you about these things I'm so passionate about. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for our episode today. If you like the topics of the High podcast, check out our workshops. We do them online and in person. Learn more on high.org. That is H-A-I dot org. See you soon.